This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, welcome back to the ACRAC podcast. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and today we're going to talk about temperature regulation. A lot of very high-yield board topics here. But before we get into that, I want to say a few things. First of all, a big thank you to those of you who took the time to send me some comments on the first episode. I really appreciate it. I was glad to hear that ACRAC is a popular name. We'll try to stick with it. Before we get into the actual episode, I have to share this fantastic article that I read this morning. So it turns out that last night at a nursing home, there was a woman who was eating some steak. She took a bite of steak and she started to choke on it. You'll never imagine who was sitting at her table. If you had to pick somebody, if you were going to choke and you had to pick someone to sit at your table, who would you pick? Well, it turns out for this lady... Eating at her table in the nursing home was none other than Dr. Heimlich, who stood up, walked around the table, and performed the Heimlich maneuver, and a piece of steak flew out of this woman's throat, and he saved her life. So Dr. Heimlich, who it turns out is a thoracic surgeon, or was, he's now 96 years old, got to do the Heimlich maneuver on his nursing home companion and saved her life. I just thought that was such an awesome story. What are the chances that Heimlich is at your table when you need the Heimlich Maneuver. Okay, let's get started with temperature regulation. So this is a topic that, as I said, is fairly high yield for boards. We're going to talk about a few things. We'll talk about what hypothermia is. We'll talk about how to define it, how to prevent it, how to treat it, and some of the complications that can arise from it. We'll look at the effects of drugs and anesthesia on temperature regulation. We'll look at heat loss and the mechanisms of heat loss. We'll look at temperature regulating centers. We'll talk about heat production and conservation, body temperature sites, and we'll talk about some non-malignant hyperthermia syndromes, the complications of those syndromes, and how to treat them. And then we'll end with some fun facts about fever. So what is the definition of hypothermia? Hypothermia is defined as a temperature, a core temperature below 35, below 35 degrees Celsius. All right, let's start with a board-esque question. Which of the following is not an adverse effect of intraoperative hypothermia? A, increased risk of infection. B, increased risk of DVT, PE. C, increased duration of neuromuscular blockade. D, increased cardiac morbidity. Take a minute, think about it. Hopefully, you said B, increased risk of DVT, PE. So as it turns out, All the other ones, increased risk of infection, increased duration of neuromuscular blockade, and increased cardiac morbidity, are 
adverse effects associated with intraoperative hypothermia, but increased risk of DVT-PE is actually not because it's the opposite, right? So increased risk of bleeding is associated with hypothermia. All right, let's talk about some of the consequences of hypothermia. And when I say consequences of hypothermia, I'm referring to intraoperative hypothermia. So first, if the temperature of a patient falls from 37 to 35 degrees, it turns out that that actually has a significant impact on their risk of infection by two to three times. So why would this be? Why would hypothermia increase the risk of infection? And it turns out there's a few reasons. So there's decreased blood and oxygen delivery to the wound. There's also, because there's decreased blood flow, there's decreased polymorphonuclear site delivery to the wound, which decreases the ability to fight the infection. And there's also decreased superoxide production, which leads to a lowering of the ability to fight the infection. What about hypothermia and blood loss? So if the temperature falls intraoperatively by just one and a half degrees down to 35.5, the average increase in estimated blood loss will be actually up to 500 cc's. And why would this be? So the main reason, of course, is because there's decreased activity of clotting factors. It turns out this is actually pretty difficult to pick up on. And the reason for this is that when labs are run, they're run at 37 degrees. So if you send a cold sample of blood, the lab will warm it up to 37 degrees before it runs your coagulation studies. And so if it's coagulopathy induced by cold, you may not actually see that reflected. You might get normal coags back and say to yourself, great, I'm in good shape, when actually you have a coagulopathy. It's just not showing up on your labs because the lab is running them at 37 degrees when your patient is actually at 34, 35 degrees. Intraoperative hypothermia can also increase the length of hospital stay for patients by up to two and a half days on average for a temperature of 35 degrees or lower in the operating room. There are cardiac effects of hypothermia. So by keeping a patient normothermic, as opposed to letting their temperature drop to 35, you can reduce their cardiac morbidity by around 55%, quite striking. Hypothermia is thought to be bad for the heart for a couple reasons. A lot of people will say shivering, but it turns out that that's been shown not to be true. It's not shivering that hurts the heart. It's thought to be arrhythmias and hypertension associated with hypothermia. So hypertension and arrhythmias that lead to the cardiac morbidity, and you can avoid that by keeping a patient normothermic. You should know that MAC decreases with hypothermia. In other words, when someone is hypothermic, they require less anesthetic in order to reach MAC. And for every one degree drop in temperature in degrees Celsius, MAC decreases by, on average, 15%. VEC and rocuronium, vecuronium and rocuronium, are prolonged by hypothermia. That's why, for example, in the ICU, we don't reverse patients who come to us with neuromuscular blockade on board until they are warm. It turns out that hypothermia, a temperature of 35, can prolong VEC and ROC action by up to 60%. So to summarize the adverse events associated with hypothermia, there's increased risk of surgical site infections, increased blood loss, increased hospital length of stay, increased cardiac morbidity surrounding arrhythmias and hypertension, increased duration of paralytics and lower MAC. And then the other things we didn't address already are renal injury and electrolyte disturbances, hypoglycemia. You can get a cold diuresis leading to hypovolemia and rhabdomyolysis, which can lead to renal failure.
what is the typical EKG finding in hypothermia? They love to ask something like this on boards. They may show you an EKG and ask what the abnormality is. They may give you a scenario with a cold patient and ask what you would see on the EKG. But you should know that the J wave, also known as the Osborne wave, is the stereotypical EKG finding. And what it looks like is after the QRS, you can either see another little wave, so you may see your S wave go all the way down to baseline and then see another wave, or you may see a the tail portion of your QRS as it comes back to baseline will actually move out and over and down a little bit so that it doesn't come straight down. It kind of curves out and then down, uh, leading to a little bump at the tail end, and that's your Osborne wave. I will include these slides on the website, acrac.libsyn.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C dot L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com, where you can download this episode if you don't get it from iTunes, and you can also access these slides so you can see these EKGs uh, in a format that will allow you to visualize them better than me trying to describe them. And remember, if for any reason that doesn't work, or if you have any questions at any time, you can post questions on the website, acrac.libson.com, or you can email me at acracpodcast at gmail.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. All right, let's move on. Let's talk about the mechanisms of hypothermia. So during the first hour of anesthesia, after the induction of anesthesia, your core body temperature will drop by about one and a half degrees Celsius on average. So why does this happen? Why does your temperature drop by 1.5 degrees? To understand this, you have to understand that the human body is not all at the same temperature. If you look at a heat map of the body, you'll see that there will be blue areas in the periphery and yellow areas as you move closer to the core and then red areas signifying higher temperature as you move closer to the core. So when the body normally distributes blood, there is cooler blood in the periphery and warmer blood in the core. And it maintains this separation through vasoconstriction. The induction of general anesthesia, however, prevents the body from conducting this normal vasoconstriction and keeping the blood separated, cooler toward the periphery and warmer toward the central core. When this happens, all of the blood mixes and you end up with an average temperature. The blood is no longer cooler on the outside, warmer on the inside. It all averages out. And when it averages out, it drops by 1.5 degrees. Therefore, it wouldn't matter if the OR was at 37 degrees. You would still see that 1.5 degree drop during the first hour. And that, again, is because that blood in the periphery is still cooler. Now, if you think about this, there is a way to prevent that drop. And what would it be? Remember, the drop comes from blood in the periphery being at a cooler temperature. So you've probably figured out that if you warm the blood at the periphery, then when it mixes with the blood in the core, it won't drop the temperature of the core. And sure enough, we have a way to do this. If you can take your bear hugger, your forced air warmer, into the preoperative area, you can warm a patient enough that they won't see that initial 1.5 degree drop. 
However, it takes a while to really warm that blood up to 37 degrees. It takes at least an hour, often two hours. And that's why we don't often do it, because we don't usually have two hours in pre-op to have a patient sitting there with a forced air warmer on. Some institutions are trying to do this for at least the time that the patient is in pre-op, and especially for cases where there's risk of lots of bleeding, like big spine cases, so that you prevent that extra factor that can lead to more bleeding. They love to ask on boards about the mechanisms of heat loss. And these are those four mechanisms that you should be able to recite. Radiation, conduction, evaporation, and convection. Again, radiation, evaporation, conduction, and convection. R-E-C-C, REC-C, radiation, evaporation, conduction, and convection. Which one of these plays the largest role in the OR? It's a question they love to ask on in-service exams and on board exams. And the answer is radiation. The next is convection. So if they ask for the top two, it's radiation and then convection. They may ask you to get into a little bit of math. What's the magnitude of the heat loss due to radiation? It's proportional to the difference in temperature, but to a certain power. And you should know it's not squared, it's not cubed, it's to the fourth power. So the difference in temperature is the biggest factor. The difference in temperature to the fourth power is what makes the difference in terms of the heat loss. How can we prevent and treat hypothermia? We talked a little about prevention in terms of preventing that 1.5 degree drop by pre-warming a patient. You can also, of course, warm a patient in the operating room during the surgery. If you're going to do this, you may wonder, is it better to put a warmer above or below the patient? Should they lay on a warmer or have a warmer above them? If you had to choose, the answer is it should go on top. And the reason for this is that when a patient lays on a warmer, their weight compresses their own tissue, so less blood flow gets to the periphery, and therefore less blood is in close contact with that warmer. Whereas when the warmer is on top of the patient, it can, the blood is flowing closer to the warmer. You will often be asked on these tests, what is the most effective non-invasive method of warming a patient? And as you probably know, as you probably use every day, a forced air warmer is the answer. A forced air warmer is the most effective way that is non-invasive. But what if we want to know the most effective way overall, whether invasive or non-invasive? And there's several ways to warm a patient, but the most effective is cardiopulmonary bypass. With bypass, you can warm a patient by up to 9 degrees Celsius per hour. That's as compared to the next fastest way, which is ECMO, veno-arterial ECMO, which can warm a patient at 6 degrees an hour, veno-venous ECMO, which can warm a patient at about 4 degrees an hour, and after that you have things like thoracic lavage, peritoneal dialysis, hemodialysis, all of which are in the 1 to 3 degrees an hour, and then active external warming, for example, with a forced air warmer, at best can get to two to three degrees an hour. Warm fluids, if you're going to use them, can help. Those should be 38 to 42 degrees. As it turns out, your body has a built-in mechanism to try to raise its own temperature, shivering. Shivering occurs, interestingly, only between the temperatures of about 32 and 35 degrees Celsius. So you start shivering when you get down to 35, but you stop shivering when you get down to 32. So below 32, you're too cold to shiver. Shivering can increase your body temperature by about one and a half degrees an hour. Pretty good. It's pretty close, actually, to a forced air warmer. 
When I first posted this podcast, one of our amazing residents pointed out to me that I had not addressed the issue of operating room temperature, and he was right. So I want to take a minute and point out that this is a significant factor as well. The degree, the magnitude of heat loss from radiation, as I mentioned before, is proportional to the difference in temperature between the patient and the environment to the fourth power. What this means is that the temperature in the environment, which in this case is the operating room, has an enormous impact because every small change in the temperature difference between the patient and the operating room can lead to enormous increases in radiative heat loss. The reason that the answer on boards to what is the most efficient way to heat a patient non-invasively is still going to be a forced air warmer is because in theory, a forced air warmer can create a bubble of a new environment around the patient where the difference between the patient's heat and the blanket's heat can actually work the other way. You can have a blanket that is at 42 degrees heating a patient up, whereas the ambient temperature in the operating room is very unlikely ever to be 42 degrees. So it's very important to think about in your clinical practice turning up the heat in the operating room if you have a cold patient, especially with a lot of exposed skin. But for boards, the answer, most efficient way to non-invasively warm a patient is still going to be the forced air warmer. You may be asked where the temperature regulating center in the brain is. And the answer is the hypothalamus. To be very specific, it's the pre-optic area in the anterior portion of the hypothalamus. And it receives signals from both the periphery and the central receptors. The peripheral receptors are in the skin and mucous membranes. And there are central receptors in and around the hypothalamus itself that sense the temperature of blood as it flows into and through the brain. Let's touch on measurement sites. You may be asked where the most accurate place to measure body temperature is. In other words, by accurate, we mean what is the closest to what the hypothalamus itself sees. And possible options here are rectal, bladder, nasopharyngeal, distal esophageal, axial. And the answer is distal esophageal. Now, people get this wrong because they think that bladder or rectal temperatures are even more accurate, but that is not true. In studies, it's been shown that the distal esophagus is the most accurate place to measure the temperature outside of the bloodstream. Now, if you're going to go into the bloodstream, the pulmonary artery or high in the IJ are the most accurate places to measure temperature. There are, as I mentioned before, many places to measure temperature, rectal, bladder, oral, axillary, and these all have mixed results in studies. Nasopharyngeal is fairly good, but it carries the risk of bleeding, and so perhaps is secondary to esophageal in terms of preference. All right, we're going to discuss two non-malignant hyperthermia syndromes. The first is neuroleptic malignant syndrome. It is a syndrome of rigidity, fever, altered mental status, autonomic instability. It's caused usually by antipsychotics, which carry up to a 2% risk of developing this syndrome if you're on them long term. Reglan can cause it, something we often use for anti-nausea. And then also stopping dopamine agonists. So people who are on amantadine, bromocryptine, levodopa, cessation of those agents can cause it as well. Things that distinguish neuroleptic malignant syndrome are that it's often late in onset, can be up to two weeks after the inciting 
drug or cessation of drug. And the treatment involves, of course, stopping the med or restarting the one that was stopped. Supportive care and or neuroleptic malignant syndrome, dantrolene can be used just as it is for malignant hyperthermia. The dose is 2 to 3 milligrams per kilogram per day, up to 10 milligrams per kilogram per day total. Parenthetically, I want to mention that for some reason, people who make anesthesia tests love to ask about dosing of dantrolene. I've seen it come up on in-service exams. I've seen it come up on anesthesia boards. I've seen it come up on critical care boards. And I've seen it multiple times in the maintenance of certification that you have to do after you take the anesthesia boards. The second non-malignant hyperthermia, hyperthermia syndrome that you should know is serotonin syndrome. So similar in that it is a syndrome of altered mental status, fever, autonomic hyperreactivity, neuromuscular abnormalities such as hyperreflexia and clonus. This one is caused by SSRIs, MAO inhibitors, TCAs, tryptophan, ritonavir, lithium, tryptans, meperidine, fentanyl, methylene blue, among others, but those are the main ones. In fact, of course, SSRIs, MAOIs, and TCAs are probably the most important ones to remember. It differs from NMS, which is the first one we talked about, in a couple of ways. It's usually abrupt in onset, and remember we said NMS was often delayed up to two weeks. Serotonin syndrome happens within six hours, usually. It causes hyperreflexia, where you don't see that in NMS. Clonus, you also don't see. You have less rigidity with serotonin syndrome, and probably because there's less rigidity, dantrolene does not help. So in NMS, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, you can use dantrolene. In serotonin syndrome, you cannot. So the treatment then is, of course, again, to stop the drug, give supportive care. Benzodiazepines often can help. And in severe cases, sometimes patients need to be intubated and have neuromuscular blockade on board. All right, let's end with some fun fever facts. True or false, the severity of fever in hospitalized patients does not correlate with the likelihood of infection. Think about it. The answer is true. Next, 50% of fevers in the ICU are not related to infection, and 67% in the post-op period are not from infection. Again, true. True. All right, true or false, treating fever below 40 degrees Celsius may cause harm. Again, the answer is true. Next, there is a cycle to normal human temperature. When is the hottest and coldest time of the day? Well, interestingly, the minimum temperature during the day is from 4 to 8 a.m., and the maximum is from 4 to 6 p.m. Now, if you're like me, this doesn't really make sense. I tend to wake up in the middle of the night hot and throw the covers off, though that may well be because my wife sneaks out and turns the temperature way up when I'm asleep. And finally, the normal temperature of 37 degrees Celsius, what we all learned to be the normal temperature, was derived from what? Now, you might think it was derived from intense studies of hundreds of thousands of human beings, but it was actually derived from a series of axillary temperatures taken in children in 1871. That's temp probes stuck under the arms of children in 1871. That's where we came up with 37. That's it. We've covered the topic of temperature regulation. 
Remember, if you have comments, you can leave them on the website at acrac.libsyn.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C dot L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or email me at acracpodcast at gmail.com. If there's a topic you'd like to see covered, please let me know. And remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.